Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Bay Preps Insider Podcast as we review week 5 of the 2023 high school football season. Go through your North Coast section, Central Coast section, San Francisco section. Kind of the typical roundup format that has already been established here in our first few episodes. Get things started with some of the noteworthy scores in the NCS. We got Alameda winning the Island Bowl over Encinal for the first time since 2015. Final score 34-0. Down year for a usually strong Encinal program. Hopefully a rivalry win that gives Alameda the sort of momentum that, you know, kids see that, they go to the game, and they think, you know what, I want to give this a shot. And then, you know, those things create momentum. Sometimes it just takes one or two big wins in front of a big crowd to get your program trending in the right direction. To get your program trending in the right direction. Last year, Encinal won by one. It was their only win of the season. So, again, dry stretch for the Encinal program, which just a couple years earlier was 9-2. and two. Knowing Encinal's history, they will not be down for long. Campolindo pulling away in the second half for an impressive 38-14 win at Monta Vista. Cougars were bumped up to... Division 1 this year under the NCS competitive equity format. I've said before, one of the rivalries where you can actually throw out the records is that battle for Pleasanton, and that held true again this year. Foothill 12-7 over Amador Valley. Falcons entered winless. Dons entered at 3-1. Didn't stop Foothill. A week after scoring 41, Amador Valley held to just 7 points against Foothill. De La Salle grounding and pounding to a 14-7 win over Folsom, led it 14-0, running the ball, controlling the clock. Style points don't show up on the scoreboard, and instead the Spartans have reverted to just bludgeoning teams on the ground, and it's going the right way. San Ramon Valley stays unbeaten, which isn't a surprise. What is a surprise, I'd say, is scoring 42 points in the first quarter and going on to blast Liberty 66-12, Emptied the bench for the whole second half. This is, as I've said from the start, one of the best teams in the North Coast section. Really impressed by what this team has done so far. Over in the AAA, the San Francisco section, six of the seven teams in action this week. Four of those played on Friday. You had Washington losing at home 14-0 to Oakland. Balboa's first win of the year, 30-7 at Skyline. Burton travels to the Central Valley, falls 16-6 to Riverbank, and Lowell heads down to Sunnyvale, falls to King's Academy 46-7. A little humble brag there. King's Academy had actually wanted to get a triple-A school on the schedule. I actually kind of helped facilitate a couple of the connections there, and that was where things lined up for teams that had an opening in the same week. So really glad that that game was able to happen. Two football programs that I hold in very high regard, and I'm glad that they were able to get together. Anytime you need help with scheduling in any sport, let me know, and I will try to utilize my connections. All right, enough bragging about what I did. Time to talk more about what actual athletes did. Thursday CCS scores, there were just three. Christopher rolls in the Severance Bowl, 35-0 over Gilroy. San Jose tops Evergreen Valley to open BVAL West Valley play 14-13, and and Del Mar all over Lick 44-0. 
Del Mar's first win of the year. Prospect looks to be the favorite in the West Valley Division, but Del Mar not too far off. Could be a game to watch moving ahead when those two teams meet in what's generally considered a one-bid league. And guess what? They don't meet until the final Friday night of the season. So while there are going to be a bunch of rivalries on that Friday, don't overlook that game. Friday night CCS action. A lot of teams with buys this week, especially in the PAL, but decent amount of good football still played. I mentioned before that Wilcox met up with Edison from Huntington Beach. The teams met halfway in Bakersfield. Edison winning that one 21-7. Reminds me of a few years ago when USF basketball met Loyola Chicago halfway in Salt Lake City and scheduled a last-minute game after their opponents for the week had to reschedule with COVID. Over in PAL Lake Division play, everyone's played league games there by this point. You had South San Francisco rolling to a 48-0 win over Lindbrook. Mills gets on the winner's list for the first time this season, 14-10 over Jefferson. Monta Vista, 22-10 over Gunn, and Cupertino, 34-13 over Saratoga. BVL West Valley had those two Thursday games, but also had a couple on Friday. Prospect handles Yerba Buena, 56-6. Gunderson wins at Hill, 36-6. Willow Glen opens up BVAL Santa Teresa Valley play without their head coach after the fallout from the issue there. Looks like he's going to be gone for the remainder of the season. Not sure what the fallout is going to be beyond this year's schedule, but the Rams win a tight one, 42-38 over Overfelt. Also had a bunch of cross-division BVAL games with the Santa Teresa Foothill Division teams going up against the Mount Hamilton teams. Uh, Christopher versus Gilroy was actually one of those. He also had the Battle of the Den, where Pioneer squeaked out a 10-7 win over Leland. Pioneer and Leland, both teams that have played some pretty low-scoring games thus far, especially Pioneer. Teams have combined for just 109 points in the Mustangs' four games. Leland going to face Santa Teresa this week on Thursday. I'll be making the trek down for that one. That should be another low-scoring affair, considering how the Saints have gone. But they doubled their offensive output for the season with a 23-13 win at Piedmont Hills. Saints had scored just 23 points in their first four games, Add on another 23 in a win to improve to 2-3 and three on the year. Oak Grove also improves to 2-3, and 22-7 over Independence. Lincoln holds on for a 13-10 win at Silver Creek, first loss of the season for the Raiders. And Live Oak improves to 4-0, winning a battle of unbeatens on homecoming night against Branham, 42-21. You know, Morgan Hill, not really a small town at this point. It's really just a San Jose suburb. But they definitely maintain some of that small-town feel, kind of still an agriculture town, and more than anything, a place where homecoming is a big deal. Looks like they had fireworks during homecoming down there. Still seems way too early in the year to do homecoming. It seems like it should be an October-November thing. I don't know, I know some of the schools out in the East Bay do it super early, too, but like on the peninsula, almost all of them do it pretty late, usually in conjunction with a big rivalry game, usually in conjunction with the end of the season one way or another. PCAL scores from Friday night. Down in the Santa Lucia division, Stevenson 45-28 over Marina. In the Mission South, North Salinas stays unbeaten 36-0 over Soledad. Mission North, Watsonville all over Santa Cruz 49-0. 
It looks like the Cardinals are going to have to forfeit this week against Seaside. They've had such low numbers. They've already, this will be the third time in six games that they have not been able to take the field. As of now, I think all of those games are considered forfeits, but some might be changed to no contest. I'm not sure how that whole deal is going to unfold. North Monterey County, 26-0 over St. Francis of Watsonville. Seaside rallies from an early deficit. 41-27 winners at Monta Vista Christian could be a game that ends up determining league title down the road. In the Gabalon division, a few scores that caught my eye. Well, really, all three of them did for various reasons. Salinas shutting out Soquel 27 to nothing. The really difficult early schedule paying dividends already for the Cowboys. And two a significant road upset with Alvarez surging late. 26-23 win at Hollister. First time the Eagles beat the Baylors since 2014. Generally, the hierarchy in that PCAL has been, you know, a top four of Salinas, Palma, Aptos, and Hollister in some orders. So this really shakes things up. Anytime a team from outside of the typical top class beats one of those four, it's going to be a huge deal. And it wasn't the only one on this night because Monterey beats Palma 22-15, to got up early, held on late. Toreadors had been putting up big offensive numbers in their prior games, scoring at least 35 in each of them. This time, getting it done with defense. Today on Tuesday, before recording, some other news came out surrounding Palma football. They were 3-2. and two. They have had to forfeit those three wins because of an ineligible player. They are now 0-5. Going to take a quick break and then discuss the West Catholic Athletic League for the week. Once again, this is Episode 7 of the Bay Preps Insider Podcast with Ethan Castle. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, please stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Making Up Schoolwork because you missed classes for Yom Kippur. All my Jewish listeners know what's up. Welcome back once again, thanks to Making Up Schoolwork because you missed classes for Yom Kippur for sponsoring this episode. Yom Kippur is actually why we're a little late getting to the table uploading this recap. I say we even though I'm one person, but pretty much consumed my entire Sunday night and Monday. So sets off the schedule for this week by a bit, but happy to be back on board. Friday night, I went to the St. Francis Midi game, one of two West Catholic Athletic League games played that night. St. Francis getting up 21-0 off of a series of Midi turnovers deep in their own territory. Midi cut it to 8 by half. St. Francis pulled away in the second half, ended up winning 42-20. My biggest takeaway from this game was that the St. Francis defense looked like a St. Francis defense, something that hadn't necessarily been the case in those losses to Helix and De La Salle. Standout performers were Ryan Oberweiss-Mannion, David Vacamelilo, and sophomore linebacker Chase Cahoon. It was really the Cahoon show altogether. Chase, a sophomore, Jackson, a junior, the two brothers, teaming up for five tackles for loss. Chase forced a fumble, Jackson recorded a sack. Also, Mac Maraca, one of the only seniors starting on that defense, one and a half tackles for loss, involved in a couple of punt blocks. Mitty did a good job getting back into the game despite all of that. Two offensive touchdown drives, one of which was a 63-yard Kingston-Kayana-Aina run. He finished with four TDs on the night. 
which is basically just run-of-the-mill for him at this point. I think we've accepted that he's just the latest in a really good tradition of St. Francis running backs. I was impressed that despite shooting themselves in the foot and having a small and inexperienced offensive line get really overwhelmed early, that Mitty was able to make it a game. Both their QBs threw for touchdowns. Joey Campagna went deep for a couple. A 73-yard bong to Maddox Gamez, and then a shorter one to Caden Aller just before halftime. Jonah Cronin, who was really the option QB early on, mostly just a runner, showing off the arm as well. He threw one to Toku Maju, making it a 35-20 game. St. Francis had to punt then, but got turned over on downs deep in their own territory. And Kayana in his fourth touchdown run put the game out of reach. St. Francis heading into Sarah this week. That'll be one of the biggest Saturday games. One of the biggest games on any day this week in the entire Bay Area. As it always is when those two teams get together. I want to give a dishonorable mention to one thing that happened on Friday night. You had a midi parent at one point come into the press box on the visiting side trying to tell people in there that they forgot to put a point up when Mitty made an extra point. So first off, there are two press boxes at St. Francis, one on each side. The one on the home side is pretty much the game staff people, and then I guess some of the St. Francis coaches are either in there or on the roof. So like the scoreboard operator and PA announcer and stuff are in the one on the home side. On the visiting side is mostly media. In this case, you had... Two broadcasts, one from the local Mountain View Community TV, KMVT, and one from the St. Francis Live Student Broadcast. You had the MIDI coordinators up on the roof. I was also in that box. So, first off, if you're looking for people in charge of the scoreboard, they're in the other press box. Second, the extra point was not good. It was wide left. Third, even if you were going to the correct press, blech. third, even if you were going to the correct press box with a legitimate gripe, which this was not, you don't barge in there even if a door's open as it was in this case. And if the score is wrong, a coach goes in and handles it. Now in basketball, sometimes scoreboard operator misses a free throw or something, and people just kind of shout it out until it's fixed. This is not like that. You don't see a scoreboard screwed up like that in football. We see timer issues all the time, including a bunch in the AAA where a lot of times students are stuck running the clock instead of a qualified adult. Just a reminder that adults should be working the clock, not kids, unless they've been rigorously trained. Even so, it looked like there was an issue Friday night in the game down in L.A., over at Dominguez, I think it was. I think it was Dominguez and Narbonne. Forget the exact specifics there, but saw stuff on Twitter about that. Yeah, it was Dominguez and Narbonne. A couple of well-known programs. Narbonne from Harbor City near Long Beach. Dominguez from Compton. Something about the clock not stopping on a late touchdown. Something of that sort. Looking at the story from the press telegram, looks like the referees at least put some of the missed time back on the clock where the clock didn't stop after a late Dominguez touchdown. But Narbonne was unhappy with clock situation all night. So go take a look at that if you're interested. The um, Daily Breeze as well as Press Telegram covering this game 
But yeah, that has a lot less to do with the St. Francis minigame. Just if there's something wrong with the clock, first off, make sure the right people are aware of it. And uh, kind of similarly related, schools should make sure that qualified and trained people are working the clock, which the people at St. Francis certainly are. They've never had issues. The other WCAL game, Sarah 61-0 over Sacred Heart Cathedral. Obviously, Sarah's head and shoulders above the rest, but my takeaway from this is that their second and third stringers would start for most teams. If you're playing with a running clock and still putting up big points, even without, you know, doing anything to deliberately run up the score, that's just because the second and third stringers are so good. And again, I've had that anecdote about Cole Harrison barely getting targets last year, which further illustrates that. Just a couple other Friday night scores I had yet to touch on. Milpitas heads to the East Bay, gets trounced 48-6 by California. Milpitas' first loss of the year. Cal is really good. Menlo Atherton 21-0 over Palo Alto. So Palo Alto shut out in back-to-back weeks, and M.A. starting to figure things out again. The return of Jordan Masui-Sui doesn't hurt. Alec Marshall catching a couple of touchdowns. He's been excellent, and... The Bears have done a really good job making sure to get him the ball. And that's a positive reflection on both QBs and Eshelman and the coaching staff. Because a lot of teams, when your best talent is a tight end, kind of just try to work that tight end within the system. Whereas MA has lined Marshall up at wide out at times and just made extra steps to get him the ball. And there are times when high school coaches and teams are so entrenched in their system that they are a little hesitant to deviate from that, even if they've got the talent to do it. And yeah, that's just something that, despite the 2-3 and three record and a couple of close losses so far this year for MA, that's something that's gone really, really well. Saturday scores, I went to, well, parts of both WCAL games, more on that in a bit, but run through a couple of the other CCS scores. Pajaro Valley, first win of the year, opening up Santa Lucia play with an 18-7 win over San Lorenzo Valley. First win for head coach Casey Neely. I believe I'm pronouncing that last name correct. N-E-L-I-G-H. I'm, I'm guessing I'm right. I'm just going to go with it. Anyway, he's a Salinas alum. It's his first win. Pacific Grove stays unbeaten 20-7 over Rancho San Juan. That was a PCAL Mission South game. Down in the Santa Lucia division, Gonzalez beats Harbor. 42-14, Spartans have won back-to-back games after dropping their first three. So I went to two games on Saturday. First was Reardon's 41-34 win over St. Ignatius, a game that took a good three hours. It was destined to be a long game with a lot of flags and a lot of incomplete passes, but it didn't need to be a three-hour game. Now, I thought this was a very well-officiated game in terms of calls. There was... One possible fumble at the goal line that was ruled down that really looked to me like the only call that might have been missed on the day. And if there are few enough missed calls that you can remember them individually, that's a good thing. However, the game was not facilitated well in that pretty much every stop, whether it was a flag or something with the chain gang or, you know, telling a player to put in their mouth guard, took forever. And that's one of the things when officiating any sport, umpiring a baseball game, refereeing a basketball game, you name it, you have to facilitate. 
And in this case, you have to keep the game moving. And this was a crew of good officials who, again, called a pretty good game. I think called a very good game, I would even say. But it's the matter of the facilitation that was certainly lacking. And it's why this game, instead of being, I don't know, two and a half hours, 240, stretched into a full three hours. Which, as much as I'm someone who doesn't complain about the length of games, like especially with baseball, I'm of the belief that the pitch clock is largely unnecessary and is shortening games too much. This this dragged on, and even if I didn't have another game to get to after, this would have felt like it dragged on. And it took some of the life out of the crowd and took a bit away from what was a really good game. Now, I want to make the obligatory disclaimer. We have a referee shortage, and we need more refs, and the referees deserve to be treated respectfully. And, and in fact, at one point, an SI assistant coach was ejected after drawing two unsportsmanlike flags. I was over on the Reardon sideline when that part was going on, so I can't attest to any of the details with it. But yeah, treat referees with respect. But yeah, it was necessary to touch on just this game needed to be facilitated so that it actually flowed because it was a really exciting game. Reardon had a couple of early turnovers, one on a kickoff. One interception by SI defensive back Dash Crispin. SI was up 17-7 after a quarter. Reardon swung back, took a 21-17 lead. That was your score going into halftime. Then SI scored off another turnover early in the third quarter. Daniel Leupold strip sack. Patrick Brusso fumble recovery. Jarius Hogan got in for his second rushing touchdown of the day, his third score overall. Reardon comes back with E.C. Tugamusu, freshman running back, getting into the end zone for the third time. SI cuts it to one on an Oren Kenny field goal. Kenny making from 40 and 45 on the day. Yes, it was with the wind, but on that 40-yarder, it was also a low snap. So great hold by backup QB Luke Bianco. Reardon drives down and scores again early in the fourth. A fifth Tugamusu touchdown run. Then Reardon linebacker Skylar Tiatia, who was one of the defensive standouts on the day, recovers a kick return fumble. Mike Mitchell throws a touchdown to Tyrone Jackson. Crusaders up 14. SI gets stuffed at the goal line a few minutes later, then turns it over on downs again, but SI gets it back to within seven on a 38-yard Brandon Mann touchdown pass to Quinn Folk. However, that came with under three minutes left, and with SI out of timeouts, Reardon just needed to recover the onside kick and get one first down, and they did. Tia Tia recovering the onside kick. Jeremiah Jones running for the first down, and that's your game. 41-34, Reardon winning. Tugamusu tying a WCAL record and a school record with five touchdowns. He ran 21 times for 71 yards, was great in goal line situations, and as a whole, he and Jones combined to be a pretty solid rushing tandem where Reardon had struggled to run the ball in past games, especially in that loss to St. Bonaventure to round out non-league play. It's hard to be super happy with your defense when you give up 34 points, but considering that almost all of those were off turnovers, I believe the only two SI scores that weren't off short fields were the two field goals. Between turnovers and a shanked punt, that's how they got all four of the touchdown drives. Reardon out gaining the Cats 483 to 230. Reardon's offense was a lot of the typical producers. Mitchell getting the ball out to 
Tyrone Jackson, Chris Lawson, Sanai Thomas, but also Jacob Debrini had a great game as a checkdown option. Eight catches for 95 yards. Freshman Wesley Wynn out with a collarbone injury, and Debrini really stepped up. Didn't get a touchdown on the day, but deserves a ton of credit for his performance. As for SI, yes, they got more than doubled in yardage, but defensively, like I said, Crispin was excellent. As much as Reardon likes to go deep, and any team with the likes of Chris Lawson and Tyrone Jackson would, Crusaders really only connected on a couple of deep bombs. They really, it was a lot of the shorter options that provided success because Crispin did such a good job in the secondary, which was going to be a concern for them this year after graduating Gus Parker. You know, SI doesn't necessarily have that one two-way receiver-DB combo like they've had in past years, but you've had a couple of guys step up a receiver between Mo Barnum and, and Pierce St. Jem, and then defensively, Crispin's done a lot, as has Mike Ryan. Jarius Hogan had a really strong game, running the ball 18 times for 110 yards. Also, four receptions for 47 yards on swing passes, so 157 total yards and three touchdowns, almost all coming out of the backfield. Really, the only thing that wasn't was the touchdown he caught from Soren Hummel late in the first quarter. Wildcats rotated both their QBs, Hummel and Brandon Mann. Offensive line had a little bit of trouble, and considering that you're facing guys like stud freshman David Lee, that's to be expected. That's hard to blame a team for, but but SIQBs were under pretty constant duress throughout the afternoon. Reardon still has some things to work on penalty-wise. The personal fouls continue to be a concern, but I liked head coach Adir Ravapati's perspective when I talked with him after the game. He said he was proud of the way his team overcame their own mistakes, which is something that they couldn't do a lot of times last year. So still some things to clean up with turnovers and discipline, but big rivalry win that eventually the Reardon community was really able to enjoy. Great crowd. I don't know if I've ever been at a game where I've known more people between not just both SI and Reardon fans, a lot of people from SHC and Sarah came out as well, and just a lot of San Francisco sports enthusiasts all together, because this is a marquee matchup. And it's great to see the Reardon-SI rivalry on such a big stage, even if it was stretched out and kind of played out in slow motion. Unfortunately, that meant I didn't get down to Valley Christian until midway through the second quarter of the Warriors' 23-7 win over Bellarmine, but the Valley Christian defense... Looks like a Valley Christian defense again. Was especially impressed with Remy Hernandez and Levante Metcalf Jr. Offensively, they've switched a few things up, actually, which hasn't been the norm for Valley. Uh, QB Joseph Stevens working out of a pistol formation with the typical jumbo backfield. So while they're still run heavy, they're doing it out of some new looks, and I really like the pistol offense. The way you're able to fire off handoffs quickly, as well as pass quickly and have enough time to protect the QB. I think it works really well. I enjoy watching it, and it seems to be generating early success for Valley. Warriors 4-0 entering their game this coming week against Reardon. Homecoming night at Valley. I had mentioned it's weird that homecoming is so early at some schools, but homecoming at Valley is a big, big deal. They always do it as this Saturday night game. They have the 
dance right after, so the students are all wearing neon for the football game, and then they go into the gym right after. What's really impressive is just the amount of people that turn out for this and the amount of entertainment between the halftime performances and maybe best of all, I think it was about eight food trucks plus a couple other stands, like a small Chick-fil-A stand and a stand from a donut shop. And it's easy to get people show up, and that includes media, and to keep people happy if you promise to feed them. That also goes for Reardon, where the... I believe it was the Reardon Men's Club was making tri-tip, and not only was it really good, like as good as the tri-tip you'll get at St. Francis or Valley, line was moving really fast. Like $12 for a tri-tip sandwich at a high school game is a little pricey, but this was really good, and I 100% would buy it again even at that price point. So if you're wondering why certain schools get a lot of media coverage, it's not just because they win. It's because they feed people. If you want more coverage at your games, feed people and let people know that you're feeding them. That's that's really like my soapbox for this week. I didn't have anything for the uh, currently unnamed personal segment. I'll think, I, I, I guess you could say that the thing about the MIDI parent could fit as that, but I didn't really designate it as such. Anyway, that's going to do it for your roundup of this week's action. This coming week, I will have the week six preview. Hard to believe it's already week six. Going to cross the halfway point of the season. I'll probably be at the Leland-Santa Teresa game Thursday, then Friday, Lincoln at Lowell, and then taking Friday night to watch the AFL Grand Final. The one Friday night a year I'm not at football because I'm watching other football. And then Saturday, to be determined going to be one of Valley Christian at Reardon or St. Francis at Sarah. With that, that's a wrap for this one. Make sure to check out bayprepsinsider.substack.com. Make sure to find me on Twitter at Castle Media. You probably know if you're listening to this, my last name is spelled with a K, and it is pronounced Castle, not Cassell. And if you see me around, be sure to say what's up, especially if you catch me at a game.